I can't take any credit for Hampus. We have an amazing team and in everything, we are thankful for every hand and helper who is a part of God's work in this place. So we're exo- I'm excited to see how it all comes together next week. We should pray. Jesus, as we come to your word now, we just thank you. Thank you that you're a God who speaks. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to just discern what you're saying this morning, to hear from you, God. Give us eyes to see what you see, Jesus. We ask in your mighty name, amen. If you've been thinking we've been in this Joshua series for a really long time, and we haven't even got to the best part of Joshua yet, today is the day. Joshua chapter six. Surely more than Pete can give a cheer for that. Great. Joshua chapter six. Before we go there though, I just wanna share a bit of a story with you. Is anyone following the World Cup cricket? A couple of people. Great. This is gonna go down really well. I married a cricket fan, so by default, I've developed an interest in this game over the years, 29 years of marriage, um, and I still don't know that much about cricket, but anyway. The World Cup is currently happening in India, and it was a bit of a shaky start for Australia. Last weekend, we heard that Glenn Maxwell had a concussion from falling off the back of a golf cart And I was starting to have my doubts about how seriously Australia were taking this competition. Anyone else with me there? Well, on Tuesday night this week, this past week, Australia was playing Afghanistan in the cricket. And Afghanistan have actually been doing surprisingly well in this competition. They went into bat and scored 292 runs. Australia goes in and responds and it plays dismally. It was a terrible start. They were four wickets down with only 49 runs scored when Glenn Maxwell came to the crease, the guy who just recovered from a concussion. It wasn't looking good. He saw three more wickets fall. We were at the tail end of a disastrous innings as Pat Cummins came into the crease. Pat is a bowler, not a batter. And at seven wickets down, Australia still needed 202 runs to win. There was absolutely no way that they could do that. The stats at that point in the game gave the probability of Australia winning at less than a 1% chance. It was 0.5%. So we decided that it wasn't worth staying up to watch Australia lose dismally in this game. There are more cricket fans here than we're letting on. I was actually snoozing in the couch for a long time already. And we decided that it was just too painful to watch, so we went to bed. The next morning at 5.30, when Stephen grabbed his phone, he went, Australia won the cricket. And I went, no. And he goes, Glenn Maxwell scored 202 runs. We raced out of bed to the television and turned on the catch-up TV replay to watch this incredible, unbelievable victory unfold. Maxwell scored 201 runs, not out, of just 128 balls 
to claim victory for Australia. Have we got some cricket fans now? Okay. He broke the record for the highest one-day cricket score for an Australian ever. Now, I had several people come up to me after this, after the last service and correct this. The male highest one-day cricket score ever. Belinda Clark, a female Australian cricketer, actually still holds the record at 229. I couldn't resist getting that in, just to correct that. Um, for all those who are going to come up and see me later and online, you don't need to message anyone now. So it was an all-time record for the eighth wicket one-day partnership. I think that stands for men and women. Um, even if Pat Cummins only contributed 12 runs out of 202, what was more amazing was Glenn Maxwell could barely walk between the wickets, let alone run. His legs were so cramped up in pain, he had no choice but to hit sixes and fours. <laughs> it was incredible. Every commentator and cricket fan would agree it was the best one-day innings ever, except if you're from Afghanistan. I'm really sorry if you're watching online or here today. And possibly England, who still haven't forgiven us for that run out in the ashes. Sorry about that. Today, um, instead of having your afternoon nap, just turn on that cricket replay. You won't be disappointed. I wonder if there's a situation in your life this morning that you are desperate to see God change, desperate for a win to come, desperate to see him bring about a victory. My guess is that whatever is on your heart right now is way more important than cricket. And as we come to chapter six in our Joshua series, there is an impossible situation to face here. The Israelites are camped on the plains outside of Jericho, a city surrounded by a wall. I think we have a picture up on the screen. The Bible doesn't actually give us, give us measurements, but there's a lot of focus on this wall in the chapter. So we know it must have been big and imposing, um, impossible to overcome. Archaeologists have been very interested in uncovering this wall and guessing what it might have looked like over the years. They think it was possibly two to three metres wide, the outer wall may have been six to seven metres high, and that inner wall stood 15 metres above ground level. It was an imposing, impenetrable wall. This city was secured and fortified, no doubt about that. No army on earth would get past this wall. It was impossible to overcome. To recap on last week, Joshua takes a, a quiet moment. I can almost picture him just leaving the hub and hubbub of the camp and walking out into that plain to survey that wall. I'm sure he was wondering in that moment how he would lead this Israelite army to conquer that city. What about that wall, God? Moses up to this point had led the battles of these people. Now Joshua was the leader. This is his first time leading a battle in the promised land. As he approached this wall, I can just see him looking up and just going, 
How, God? How could this happen? In that moment, Joshua has a personal encounter with the Lord himself. In the Old Testament, God reveals himself by different names that reflect his character and action in the narrative story of his people. And in this exact moment that Joshua is feeling the weight of the battle he's about to engage in, God reveals himself for the very first time in Scripture as the commander of the Lord's army. That's pretty good news for Joshua at that point. If he didn't already know that about God, the commander of the Lord's army was there with him. Joshua falls to the ground in reverence. Even though we have a chapter break separation in our Bibles between that happening and then what God speaks next over this action plan that he's leading Joshua in, I really think they're meant to go together. It was a holy moment that was significant preparing Joshua to move into this action plan for the battle. There was an important shift of perspective taking place here. The walls were still high, but now God was bigger than those walls. Joshua's army was still inexperienced and ill-equipped, but he knew the commander of the Lord's army was with him. God was fortifying Joshua's heart as he was about to share the battle plan. We read in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you were to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horn, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people will charge straight into the town. There are many things that struck me in these verses which parallel the battles in our own lives. Firstly, there's Jericho on high alert, melting in fear. We know from Rahab's story in chapter 2 that the people of Jericho had heard of the victories that God had won for his people. They were terrified of the God they recognized as the supreme of the heavens above and the earth below. No God could do what this God could do. Our enemy, who might look to us like he cannot be overcome, actually cowers in fear, knowing he is no match against Almighty God. Hear that this morning. Secondly, I'm struck by the bold declaration here that God has already given Jericho to Joshua. Did you see that? No one has done anything yet, and God makes that declaration. It's a done deal before Joshua even hears the plan. The battle has already been won. Joshua can't see it yet. The people can't see it yet. 
And it opens us up to the wonder that what might be so in the physical reality of what we see isn't necessarily the spiritual reality of what God sees. Joshua is called as we are called to have eyes of faith, to believe the truth that Jesus has already won for us the spiritual victory. Amen. Thirdly, God's plan seems, well, a little on the unusual side. If you sat down any army and said their victory would come by just circling around the city that they wanted to attack, um, they probably wouldn't be so quick to jump on board. You know, there were three logical ways to attack a fortified city. And there were lots of fortified cities in this ancient time. The first way was that you could find a kind of chink in the wall, find a weak spot in the wall and attack there, penetrate from the outside. The second way you could try would be to infiltrate the city from the insides, Trojan horse style, kind of sneak in and then do the battle from within. Or you could hold a siege and force the inhabitants out to surrender after all their food and water ran out. And I wonder, Joshua knowing that, probably was raising his eyebrows at God, going, just walk around the wall, just walk. It reminds me of that passage in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. We need to let go of trying to engineer the battle plan ourselves with a strategy that might make sense to us and let God lead us, let God show us his way. Joshua doesn't question or hesitate to obey. It's the pattern of his life to listen to God and follow him. It's what sets Joshua apart as an incredible leader in all of scripture. I feel like the pattern of my life is a little bit different. I might hear God. Then I might wonder if it's actually God. Then I might spend a while questioning what God actually said. And then I might wonder if it could actually do what he said, in my opinion. And then I might remember all the things that God's done in the past and then finally muster up enough faith to trust God in this. And then I'm amazed at what I see God do. I hope none of you can relate to that. When God speaks, he wants us to jump in 100% in obedience, with conviction, in the mission that he's given us. Obedient action in response to divinely given promises is the way we experience the sovereign grace of God in our lives. It's the way we see him do impossible things. Obedient response. Joshua receives God's instruction and in the very next verse, he acts upon it. In verse six, so Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Notice they didn't get told the whole plan here, just the instruction they needed for that day. 
It was quite a procession, if you can imagine it. Half of the army marching in front, half of the army marching behind. In the centre, seven priests carrying their shafars, trumpets made out of ram's horns. The emphasis here, though, is not on the army. It's not, the, the whole plan doesn't hinge on the army. I think the emphasis here is on the symbol of God's divine presence with them. The Ark of the Covenant, it's at the very center of this march. Just as it was with God's people in that miracle Jordan crossing, God's presence is with them, key for the victory that God is about to unfold. In verse 11, we read, The ark of the Lord was carried around the town once that day, and then everyone returned to spend the night in the camp. In the camp. Can you imagine the conversation when they got back to camp that night? Tell us what happened today. We saw the ark of the Lord go out. Was there a miracle? Did you fight? Was there a battle? Uh, no. We, we just kind of marched around the city and then we came home. Wow, that's it? Yeah, maybe tomorrow we'll be able to go into the city. Yeah, maybe, maybe tomorrow. Let's keep reading in verse 12. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests again carried the ark of the Lord. The seven priests with the ram's horns marched in front of the ark of the Lord, blowing their horns. Again, the armed men marched both in front of the priests with the horns and behind the ark of the Lord. All this time, the priests were blowing their horns. On the second day, they marched around the town once and returned to the camp. No battle on day two either. Actually, it was the same on day three. Still no change on day four. Just more walking on day five. And still more walking on day six. Six days of this pattern. Nothing is happening. I love, I heard this once and it stuck with me always. We often say nothing is impossible for God, quoting Matthew 26, I think it is. But nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. He can't do nothing. He's always doing something. Even when it doesn't seem like he's doing anything. And I wonder if you have had the feeling like you're going around in circles. The Israelites knew what that felt like. You know, it's the place where it's really tempting to give up on God to think he's forgotten, that nothing is happening, but nothing is impossible for him. Maybe some of you have been waiting for six days. Maybe some of you have been waiting for six years for God to, to see God do something. Maybe some of you here today have been waiting six decades. Are you on the verge of giving up? I just need to go to our cricket example one more time. With 50 runs to victory, Glenn Maxwell collapsed on the ground. 
His legs were cramping and you could see his whole body just shaking in spasms right next to the wickets. Maxwell said he was done. Pat Cummins came over and told him he should go off, go and retire hurt. Adam Zampa is all padded up. He's ready to come out. But the team physio came onto the field to check out Maxwell and he said, you need to keep going. You can do this. Somehow Maxwell got up and somehow he kept going and somehow he made those next 50 runs to take Australia to victory. Don't give up on lap six. You don't know how close you are to seeing God fulfill his promises. You don't know how close you are to God doing a mighty victory. Don't give up. Joshua stays the course here. He just keeps turning up. He just keeps following God's instructions. He just keeps walking. Trusting in God when it doesn't make sense. Someone here this morning needs to be reminded that the timing of God's promises are in his hands and not ours. If you feel like he's forgotten you in the midst of the battle, don't give up on day six. Press into his word. Hold on to his promises. Keep walking in obedience and trusting that God is always doing something to bring about his victory for his glory. Joshua told the army they weren't allowed to speak while they were walking around. All they could hear was the sound of those priests blowing the trumpet of that ram's horn, the shafar. All that they could hear was the sound of the trumpet and footsteps. And I wonder if God was reminding of the promise that he gave back in chapter one, wherever you set your foot, you will be on land that I have given you. This was God's land, not their land. This was God's battle, not their battle. This was God's victory, not their victory. And as they tuned in to the sound of those footsteps marching, God was making this alive and real in their hearts. They're marching to his footsteps, his beat. Or maybe that marching around the city was an act of grace for the people of Jericho. Have you ever wondered about that? We heard when Joshua faced the commander of the Lord's army back in chapter five and asked him, are you for me or against me? The Lord said, neither. He's for people. He's for anyone who will turn in repentance to him. And maybe that six days of trumpet blowing were a call for anyone still in Jericho who would repent and turn to God. God is not against people. Hear that this morning. He's against the sin that separates us from the life that he created us for. In Isaiah chapter 55, we read these words, Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy 
on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. He hadn't written off these people yet. Those six days were an opportunity for the people of Jericho to turn to God. Maybe in those six days, it was Rahab's family who she could finally convince to join her in the promised salvation that she was holding on to. We don't always know the reasons. And sometimes it feels like God is slow. But if you feel like you're about to give up, keep holding on. God is doing something and victory is coming. Let's keep reading in verse 15. On the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. By this time, but this time, they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, as the priests sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. On all the other days, they got up early, but on this seventh day, they got up at dawn. They started marching around as they had before, priests blowing the shofars as had happened on the previous days. But this time it was different. They marched around the city once, then twice, three times around, four times around, five times around, six times around, seven times around. And then the long blast of that horn, the command to raise their voices in a shout of victory. The emphasis on seven here gives us a picture of divine perfection and completion. Like creation was completed in seven days. This pattern repeats in scripture. God here brings the promise to his promise to completion after seven times around the city and on the seventh day, seven times. There are seven priests, seven horns, even down to the detail of the Ark of the Covenant being mentioned seven times in this passage. You can count that. I checked. All this is making a point. God's plan is being perfectly fulfilled. He's not slow in keeping his promises. He is able to do all he has said he would do. At that shout of praise, the impenetrable wall collapses. Imagine the sound of it cracking and tumbling down. You would have felt the vibration through the ground. The Israelites charge into the city to claim their victory. It echoes the words of Zechariah 4.6. It is not by force, nor by strength, but by my Spirit, says the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies. There was only one part of this wall that remains intact and it had a scarlet ribbon hanging from the window. It was Rahab's window. Rahab's rescue is a beautiful detail not forgotten in this story. In the midst of destruction, there is a picture of God's redemption. It points us to the cross of Jesus where his blood flowed scarlet to save all who will turn to him. The prostituted woman had faith to believe in God, to believe in his plan. 
She put her life on the line to protect those spies who'd earlier come into the city to scope it out. In faith, she acted on the instruction to leave a, a scarlet cloth hanging from her window, a scarlet rope, believing that she would be rescued and saved. Joshua kept his promise to her. He sent the spies in to rescue her and her whole family. She joined God's people and her story is woven into the lineage of Christ himself. A reminder that no one is excluded from God's salvation plan. No one is beyond his grace. Salvation in Jesus is for everyone. As we close today, I felt like God's word for us corporately in this passage today is, I have given you this city. I have given you this city. Over the five past five months, five or six months, some of the streetlight team have just had it on their heart to go into the city and love the homeless and disadvantaged in there. Many of you work there or go in there will notice the increase in homelessness in our city. They kind of went, we've created this community and opportunity to love people here in Aspley. Can we do that in the city? Ben, who is leading that little team that go in on a Thursday, keeps saying to me, Jody, God's given us this city. God's given it to us. And I'm like, oh, Ben, it's a big city. <laughs> Ben's got eyes of faith to see what God can do. Just had a meeting recently with someone else who um, has a ministry in the city and he let us know that at the same time we planted a church in there, there are about five or six other churches who came in at exactly the same time and all of them have a heart to see God move in our city. Is that not exciting, church? He's not just speaking that to us. He's raising up an army of people who can see into the spiritual realm the victory that He has won. We want to see that come, Lord Jesus. A little message. When we first went into the park in the city, I have to tell you, it was hectic. It was hectic. It was dark and it was hard. People were angry and broken and it was, it was heavy there. We knew and could sense the spiritual battle that was so much tougher than what we'd experienced before. And so we went to prayer. We fight our battles in prayer. If, you, if you've been a part of my Tuesday prayer group, we always pray for Streetlight. I know many other prayer groups as well. I know many people pray over this ministry. And God hears these prayers. Just this week, Ben sent me a message which just highlights how things are changing in just five months. Ben wrote this. This week, 350 cups of coffee, cordial, Milo, and biscuits were served. It was a super peaceful night. He definitely didn't write that at the beginning, let me tell you. It was a super peaceful night tonight with a great community feel. A guy who comes along pointed out a new homeless lady. She was in her late 50s and it was her first night on the streets. One of our volunteers gave her a tent and some bedding and two other homeless guys helped her set it up. She was crying. She was so thankful. Ben writes, great work, Nathan, for supplying the tent. Another homeless lady 
with breast cancer received a little care package from another volunteer who had recently been through cancer herself. She was loving it, even shared her treats. We had a fellow with four kids under 12 rock up. They had their suitcase full of clothes stolen, so we were able to get them some clothes and beanies to help out. The kids loved the games we'd set up to play and I think they pinched some of our UNO cards. Ha ha. Another lady opened up to conversation for the first time. Finally, it feels like people feel safe and welcome here. From the guys with face tattoos to the quiet ladies. Ben finishes, praise the Lord. Our prayers are powerful, praise the Lord. God is giving us this city church. As we come into this Christmas season, He's telling us today that there are no walls or strongholds that His salvation, His victory cannot overcome. It is God's heart to rescue and save the people here. As we step into Christmas, hampers, high teas, Christmas lights, we are believing that in this season, God is shining light into darkness, not darkness like never before. Believing that salvation has come, that God's big enough to overcome the battles and obstacles that we face. I don't wanna to overlook today that there are some here just really feeling strongly that sense of battle. I don't know if it's a work situation for you, a family situation, maybe a health challenge that you're in. Battles even internally that you are wrestling with right now. Allow God to reveal who He is to you in this quiet moment. Hear Him say today, keep walking. Keep trusting. Keep holding on in obedience to who I am. I'm doing something. Don't give up. The band are going to come now. We actually mentioned, uh, was able to get a ram's horn shafar. Can you believe that for our service today? Jono happened to find someone walking past on the pathway outside who said yes when he said, does anyone play the trumpet? That's not filling me with faith. We've got to encourage Dave who said yes here. <laughs> Good on you, Dave. We're faith filled. We're just going to take a moment now, just have a quiet minute with God for you to fall face down and worship like Joshua did, to hear from God in the midst of the battles that we're facing today. And then we are going to give a mighty shout of praise when that shafar blows, church. Take a minute now.
Jesus, we seek you here today. We seek your way, God. I pray that you just reveal again who you are. Reveal your promises to us, God. Fill us with faith to trust and believe that you are a God who is moving. You're a God who is acting. You're a God who is working. Give us eyes of faith to see what you're doing, Jesus. Lord, we surrender and humble ourselves before you. Lay our plans at your feet, God, and step in today to your plan for your people. Lord, we hold on to that word that you have given us this city. We declare it with you today, Jesus. Let it be so, God. Holy Spirit, come, we pray. In your mighty name, amen. Church, please stand with me. If you're at home, you need to stand here. If you're in the car driving and listening to this, don't stand, but you have to shout, okay? We're gonna hear the shofar, the band's gonna play, and we have to give a shout of praise here, God. Like, guys, we are gonna take this city. The victory shout is ours. Go, Dave. Let's encourage him, actually, as he comes to do that.